If you guys are new with us this morning, uh, my name is Chris. I'm one of the pastors here. And this morning we're going to start this Advent series. So for the next four weeks, uh, we're going to be going through the Advent leading up to our Christmas Eve service. And like Kyle said, we're kind of testing something out here with the seating, particularly for Christmas Eve because we're trying to see if we can not have to do two services and just do one and fill this place up. And so it looks like it's working out all right, yeah? Um, anyhow, let me pray, and then we'll get into it this morning. Jesus, we thank you uh, for this morning. Thank you for each person that is here. I pray, God, that you would use your word to speak to us this morning. I pray, God, that you'd challenge us and equip us, encourage us. God, you know where each and every soul in this room is at this morning, and I just pray you'd talk to each of them, Jesus. Um, Lord, we thank you. We thank you, God, for your spirit, and we pray your spirit be moving amongst us in and through us this morning. Jesus, in your name, amen. Amen. All right, if you guys want to open up your Bibles, we're going to bounce around a bunch this morning. Um, We're going to be in Isaiah chapter 9 for a bit, and then we're going to bounce into 1 Peter. How many of you guys have ever been to like an Advent service before, or like a series of Advent services? As we talk about this word Advent, we're talking about the arrival, and um, this word Advent means arrival, and uh, we're talking about the, for us, what is the second arrival of Jesus, that our hope to come is that Jesus is going to return and come back for his church. Um, But this, this week I was actually doing a little research with regards to anticipation, and this what it means to be to anticipate the arrival of something. And I was thinking about the fact that as human beings, we're kind of always anticipating, aren't we? In fact, I would say that we're borderline addicted to anticipation in the culture that we live in today. Uh, we're always desiring to get past this to get on to what's next. We're habitually anticipating. We sort of thrive on anticipation. A couple weeks ago, it was my birthday, uh, my birthday week, I guess. Yeah, that's cool. 41 years old. Man, don't look a day over 25, do I? Um, It was my birthday week, and also also my youngest son's birthday week. And going into that week, we had multiple birthday parties, family, friend birthday parties, birthday parties for Jonah, uh, for family and friends. We had uh, a bunch, a series of a bunch of different events, dinners, birthday parties, uh, family celebrations, all these things to do in this week. And I found myself about halfway through the week, after being at about three of the different events, I found myself at one of the events thinking to myself, I wonder what the next one is going to be like. I can't wait to get till Friday, or I can't wait to get till Saturday. And it was odd to sit back and actually think about how much I was anticipating the next event before the current event even started, or while I was in the midst of the event that I was in. And it was sort of like one after another. And when I have busy weeks, I often find myself anticipating the next thing before the current thing is even finished with. And it's like I'm looking days down the road in anticipation of what's to come while I'm immersed in the prior commitment that I had once anticipated would be there. And I feel like it's a bit of a vicious cycle in our life. Like what concerned me this time particularly was that my my constant anticipation of the next event Um, was actually keeping me from being present in the now. And when we think about our lives, um, what are some mile marker moments in a person's life? Why don't you blurt them out to me? Babies? 
So, so multiple babies. Marriage, turning 18, graduation, baptism, anything else? Salvation, what about your first real job? What about traveling? What about your driver's license? Like you go through a series of events in your life anticipating the next thing that you're hoping to accomplish. And I just wonder if sometimes we're so fixated on the next mile marker moment that we actually lose focus of the here and now. And honestly, even as we enter into this Christmas season, it's easy to anticipate the season of Christmas and all that comes with that, with that decorating parties, music, gifts, food, um, that we simply blaze right by through the season without stopping to remember what it is we're celebrating. We just blaze through it all because we're always anticipating the next thing. I, I read this study this last week that was kind of interesting um, that, that basically said that humanity is addicted to anticipation. When, when they studied the brain activity of people who uh, had addictive behaviors, they found that those with addictive behaviors aren't just addicted to getting the thing that they're addicted to. They're actually mostly addicted to the anticipation of getting the thing that they're addicted to, which is really interesting. So they're not, like drug addicts aren't addicted to the next fix. They're actually addicted to the anticipation of the next fix. There's something about the anticipation that drives them. When you, when you think of multiple kinds of addictions in our day and age, people aren't looking for the reward that comes when they actually give into that addiction. They're actually looking for the anticipation that comes with it because there's a dopamine rush that they're addicted to that comes through the anticipation, not just the fix. And it's pretty interesting that, that again, those that are, that are addicted um, aren't addicted to the fix. They're addicted, they're addicted to the anticipation of getting the fix. And I think this is constant with human nature. Even on our good days, we're anticipating better days, aren't we? Even on our good days, we're not content with the good days. We're actually looking for a day that we better. We, we, we kind of chase that whole series through life. Like what we're in now is not enough. We're anticipating what's better and what's to come. Uh, we've all got this idea of this place way out in the future that someday we'd like to be. And we're all driven by the, this anticipation and the expectation of getting that thing. I, I heard a pastor once say that all frustrations are birthed out of unmet expectations. And so as my wife and I do marriage counseling with people, uh, as we deal with people one-on-one and counsel with people, you see that um, most often it's because one person is frustrated with the other. And as you counsel people, you begin to notice this common thread that their their frustrations are almost always coming out of a lack or an expectation that wasn't held up things that were anticipated that didn't come through, that that they didn't come to pass. And so the response to that is frustration. So their frustration is is birthed out of this anticipation or expectation that didn't turn out the way that they wished it would have turned out. So anticipation can do two things in us. One, uh, it can cause us to neglect the here and now because we're so busy looking into the future. And two, it can actually cause us to get frustrated when the thing that we're anticipating doesn't actually come to pass. This whole season that we're going to be celebrating through Advent um, is this season of anti- built on anticipation. So my, my prayer is that I want God to sort of like bring this anchor to us through this next four weeks and sort of redeem our expectations and our, and our anticipation so it can actually shape our lives. 
I, I, I love the Christmas season, but I'm not quite as crazy about the Christmas season as my wife is. Like, she loves everything about Christmas, the feel of Christmas, like the, the smells, the sounds, the lights, like everything about it. And, and the older I get and the more traditions we've established with my kids, I actually appreciate a lot of this as well. It's awesome. I, I love Christmas. Um, so I don't want you to get me wrong, but most of what's being thrown at us during the Christmas season via commercials and advertisements and Instagram and Facebook um, are promising us this reality that's probably not lined up with actual life. It's all kind of a farce. It's fake. And so we begin to set our expectations for the season based on what we see being thrown at us, i.e. via Instagram and advertisement and whatnot, um, or when you go walk into a retail store and you just get the onslaught of stuff thrown in your face. And it would seem as though in everything we see, there's this anticipation of a life that is perfect being thrown at us. And so what you watch on TV, people are never arguing in Christmas commercials, are they? People aren't bickering with one another. Like, people aren't bummed about circumstances in their life. In Christmas commercials, everybody's like sipping on a cup of coffee, sitting by the fire with the Christmas tree on, and everything's honky-dory in life. And it's not real life. And some of you, do some of you live that life? I think of that, that one, like, coffee commercial. Was it U-Ban or Folgers back in the day? It was like, pita, and the guy comes home from, like, being off at war for a while and he comes home and the family's like immediately enamored uh, by this guy and they paint this like very rosy picture of what is actually taking place and it's just not real life. And so we begin to set our expectations for the season based on what we see being thrown at us and it actually creates a feeling for us at Christmas. Like there's an anticipation building in us and in our families throughout the season and it's kind of a lie if you think about it. Like we're anticipating something that is not real. It's like fake news kind of. And, and here's the bummer is that after the Christmas season is all over, how many of you feel bummed out when it's time to put everything away that you set up for Christmas? There's like a bummer that comes with it. It's like a letdown, like a wah-wah um, uh, several years ago when I, when I did an Ironman race, I was training for a year for Ironman and all leading up to the training, I was like reading blogs and I was like getting my nutrition right. And I was catching up with all this Ironman stuff and trying to learn as much as I can. And I stumbled across some blogs online that were written about post Ironman depression. Have you guys ever heard of this? And I kept thinking to myself, that is a joke. Like, seriously, there's counselors out there who dedicate their time to post-Ironman depression. And I kept thinking, that's just ridiculous. Like, why would I get depressed after completing this major feat in your life? Like, that just sounds so dumb. And so I, I get through training, and I finish the Ironman. Do you want to know what the next two weeks to a month after Ironman felt like? A massive letdown. Because for a year, I'd been prepping for something and anticipating something, and once that thing came, it was like, all hope was lost. <laughs> like, what am I going to do now? You know, I don't have a goal anymore. And, and you feel this massive letdown. But when our expectation and our anticipation is fixed on things that will come and go, we actually end up feeling dissatisfied. And so over the next four weeks, I want to look back and I sort of want to marvel at and have our hearts like stirred up with what's really going on. 
and what we Christians are celebrating. And I want us to look to the future, and I want us to have our anticipation sort of redeemed by this expectancy that actually transforms, changes the way that we live, like this redeemed anticipation that allows us to be fully present here and now. Amen? That's really my hope for the next four weeks, is that we will look back, but we'll also look forward, and we'll be filled with anticipation, expectation of what's to come, but not things in this earthly life. So to give you a little bit, little bit of background on Advent, um, many more liturgical churches than us observe what's known as the church calendar. And so uh, this would include seasons such as Advent, it would include uh, Epiphany, it would include Lent, uh, it would include the Holy Days like Christmas, Easter, and Pentecost. And so traditionally, the purpose of observing all of these these seasons in the calendar was actually to walk the church through the life of Jesus, his birth, his life, his death, and his resurrection on a yearly basis. And so during Advent, we're celebrating Jesus' first Advent, or his first coming, um, through the season, of, uh, uh, and, and then through the season of Advent, our hope is that um, we'll actually be able to relate to and understand even Israel's long-awaited anticipation and arrival of the Messiah. So for thousands of years, Israel waited for the Messiah to come. They, they waited for the promises that they knew to be fulfilled when their Messiah would actually arrive. And did you know in the Old Testament alone, there's over 300 prophecies that, that Jesus fulfilled. And so we're reminded in the Advent, in this, this waiting time, we're, we're reminded in this, um, uh, this ex- expectation, this expectancy in a, a waiting period for the birth of Jesus, we're reminded that Jesus once came as a child that he was born, and that he would actually fulfill not only that promise that he would come into the world, that he would live this blameless life, that he would die a brutal death, that he would be resurrected again, but we're also awaiting this second promise that Jesus one day will return for his church. He will come back for those who are saved, and he will take them to their eternal home in heaven with him. And so just as Israel waited thousands of years for this coming Messiah, we also wait, and we're longing for and anticipating Jesus' arrival. Traditionally, Advent focused on four different themes that we'll be focusing on over the next four weeks, hope, peace, joy, and love. And today, I just want to zone in on hope. And I, and I particularly want to talk about hope in the waiting, because we're all living in this waiting time. Jesus hasn't returned yet. Most of our life is spent in the waiting. And so how do you find hope when you're waiting for something? Because we live in a world that gets things really fast. We don't want to wait for anything. It's like instant gratification is sort of our MO. And so how do you live in a life of waiting, like awaiting Jesus' second return while also living in the hope that exists and is promised to you here and now? So my premise is this, that true hope actually sustains us through the waiting seasons of our life, that true hope actually sustains us when things get hard, that true hope actually gives us an anchor to latch onto when everything else in life is fluid and shifting. Um, there's a brief history lesson. Uh, around 600 B- BC, I want to say BFC, Borders for Christ, that's funny. Um, around 600 BC, the prophet Isaiah wrote the book of Isaiah, uh, in which the prophet prophesied the coming of this Messiah, Jesus Christ. 
We read it actually a few weeks ago. So Isaiah prophesied to this nation that had turned their deaf ear to the Lord, that instead of serving him with humility and offering, to their, uh, offering love to their neighbors, the nation of Israel offered these meaningless sacrifices in God's temple and committed these horrible injustices throughout the nation. And so the, the people of Judah turned their backs on God and alienated themselves from their God, which created this need for Isaiah's prophecy to come about, this, this judgment that he speaks on behalf of the Lord. And so Isaiah made these declarations with this desire that God's chosen people would actually return to him. That was his heart. Was, this was God's judgment coming through a prophet with the heart that, that, that this judgment would actually turn the hearts of the people back to their God. And so fast forward 200 years from uh, when Isaiah wrote the book of Isaiah, and you have this 400 years of silence. Have you guys heard about this period? The intertestamental period in between the Old Testament and the New Testament where God goes silent for 400 years, where God stops speaking to the nation of Israel at all for 400 years. Like even though Israel had vacillated between following and listening to and running from God, God continued to speak to them through prophets up until this time. But after the prophet Malachi, God goes silent for 400 years. He goes silent. There's no prophets. There's nobody speaking to them on behalf of God, and God's not speaking to them directly, and so there's this silence. So I want you guys to imagine 400 years without God speaking, 400 years of silence, especially when you're this nation that had been used to to God speaking to you, even if it was a harsh word. You were used to God's words, but God used the prophets throughout time to not only deliver these hard words to the people and tell them to turn from their ways, but also to deliver messages of hope to the people. Like they were laced with hope of what's ahead, to anticipate what's to come, to turn their hearts back to him because they knew what was being rewarded to them, what what the promise was in the future. And so if you're an Israelite and you're used to at least being reminded of what's to come and now that's gone, How will 400 years or 13 generations of silence impact you and your families from that point forward? It would be kind of odd. I bet there were a few different types of people during that season. One, I'm sure that there were many lost, that that had lost all hope, that there was, uh, they didn't think that there was anything good ahead. They stopped believing in God altogether. Two, I'm sure that there was a, a group that grew complacent, that, that even continued to teach their kids about God and the Holy Scriptures, yet lived their lives as though he didn't exist because they never heard from him. And then three, uh, I'm certain that there was a contingency of people who continued to teach God's words to their kids, to treat others with respect, to love their neighbors, to walk out their beliefs in hope that what was said hundreds of years prior by the prophets would actually come to pass, even if they aren't the generation to see that happen. I'm sure there was these three types of people. And you would hold on to words such as these if you were living in that era. Isaiah 7, 14. Therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, a virgin will be with child and bear a son, and she will call his name Emmanuel. Or Isaiah 9, 2. The people who walk in darkness will see a great light. Those who live in a dark land, the light will shine on them. Or Isaiah 9, 6 and 7, for a child will be born to us, a son will be given to us, and the government will rest on his shoulders, and his name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Father, Prince of Peace. 
There will be no end to the increase of his government or of peace on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it, to uphold it with justice and righteousness from then on and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will accomplish this. Like if you believed these words to be true as a Jew, you would hold on to these promises laced all throughout the Old Testament. Hold on to these promises. You anticipated that God would follow through because even in the darkest seasons, there were promises that the light would come and that a child would be born, and that the government or authority would rest on his shoulders, and that he would be the wonderful counselor, that he would be the mighty God, that he would be the eternal father and the prince of peace, and that he will reign on David's throne over his kingdom and uphold justice and righteousness. Like All of these things will be things that you would be anchored to, you'd be tethered to in a season of not hearing from God at all, where it was dark and silent. You're holding on to the pieces of hope that you have, and the hope was that which God said he would follow through with. And then in Isaiah 51.1, it says, listen to me, you who pursue righteousness, you who seek the Lord, and then five and six, my righteousness draws near, my salvation has gone out, my arms will judge the peoples and the coastlands hope for me, and for my arm they wait. Lift up your eyes to the heavens and look at the earth beneath, for the heavens vanish like smoke, the earth will wear out like a garment, and they who dwell in it will die in it like, in like manner. But my salvation will be forever, and my righteousness will never be dismayed. Like during these 400 years of silence, if you studied any of that intertestimonial period, there was this Jewish resistance group that rose up during that time. And this group was called the Maccabees. Anybody read anything about the Maccabees, studied the Maccabees at all? Pretty interesting group. Um, in 168... BC, this Syrian king goes in and he totally desecrates the Jewish temple, like the, the most sacred of places for the Jews to worship. He just destroys it. And then he abolishes Judaism and he offers the Jews two options. He basically says you can convert or you can die. And then the temple gets renamed underneath the, the Greek god Zeus and everything's kind of overthrown. And so there's this priestly family known as the Maccabees, and, and they, they begin to form and they begin to fight backs against, back against the cruelty of this king and what he's putting their people through. And so even though the Maccabees were this smaller group, it wasn't a massive army, they were easily outnumbered by who they were fighting against, they actually win two battles against this king. And they take the temple back over. So after these battles, they actually rededicate the temple to their God. And, and it's said that they could only find enough oil inside of the temple to light the menorah for one day. And so they light this menorah for one day. But miraculously, this oil ends up lasting in the temple lit for eight days. And so which starts this tradition of Hanukkah and lighting one candle of the menorah each day for eight days. So I, I love this piece of history because it tells the story of a group of people that lived for God even in times when everybody around them was faltering and wouldn't fight. A group of people whose hope actually propelled them to live fully in the moment while also anticipating the hope of things to come. But in order to live with hope in the waiting, we actually have to understand what hope is. And so I want you guys to turn with me to 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 3 through 9. You guys can say word when you get there. Are you with me? Awesome. Awesome. First Peter chapter 1, verse 3. 
It says, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he's caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you've been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Though you've not seen him, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. So what is hope? This passage gives us three things about hope that Jesus brings that I want to share this morning and then we'll wrap up. Um, I often think that we think of hope as sort of like a, a Hail Mary pass, right? Hope is like, uh, I'm thrown into the dark and I'm hoping that something sticks. Like hope for us is like, we have somebody in our family who has a sickness and we hope that they would get better. Or somebody who's dying, we hope that, that, that they would pull through. Or, or we hope that we would get the job that we've been waiting for. And hope ends up being this blind faith and this sort of Hail Mary pass in our life. It's not attached to anything. There's no security in it at all. And this isn't the type of hope that Jesus Christ gives. Peter says that his hope is a guarantee. So the first thing is that we, we see about hope in First Peter is that it's guaranteed. That every, every now and then you hear these stories about uh, somebody who received a large gift or inheritance from a family member. Anybody in here received? I'm, you don't have to tell us. Um, but every now and then you hear these stories, like of people who, I had this long lost family member that I didn't know about, and I got like millions of dollars from them. Like how many of you in this room would love for that to happen, right? That'd be pretty amazing. But for most of us in the, this room, there's no chance that it's going to happen. But the Bible says that we've been guaranteed an eternal inheritance. So even if your family isn't rich, and you don't have some secret family member that's going to give you millions, even if we don't have that. We're guaranteed this inheritance through Jesus. And it's not this, I hope it works out, or Hail Mary. It's guaranteed to inherit, as Peter says it, to an inheritance that is imperishable, that is undefiled, that's unfading, kept in heaven for you. We don't have to worry about heaven's stock market crashing and us losing it all. It's not going to happen. This is this internal inheritance that in Jesus, you and I, have the opportunity to receive, and it's locked away. It's secure. This inheritance is eternal life, and it's guaranteed through Jesus's resurrection. In Jesus, we have a hope that death is not the end for us, right? That death is actually the beginning, because we hope for the next life where we spend eternity with our God. But this hope, it requires trust. It requires security, And this hope is the reason that we keep going. The author of Hebrews refers to this hope as the anchor for our souls. Like we use hope as an anchor that keeps us tethered in crazy times. Because what are you tethered to when everything shakes loose in your life here on this earth? And in in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, Paul says this, And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is worthless. You're still in your sins. Then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If we have hoped in Christ in this life only, 
We are of all men most to be pitied. What Paul said is if Christ is not risen from the dead, then two things. One, we're still dead in our sins. If Jesus did not raise again, we're still dead in our sins. No matter how good you are, no matter how many right things you do, you're still dead. And the only thing that actually raises us to life is the resurrection of Jesus. It's not our good works, right? And so Paul says if Christ didn't raise from the dead, then we're still dead. But then he also says this, that if Christ didn't raise from the dead, then we have no future hope. If that did not happen, we have no future hope because that was the down payment. He says if we have hope in this life only, then we're of all men most to be pitied. Like without the resurrection, then we're gathering here this morning to sing songs to a dead God and study words about a dead God and we're without hope. And it's not the case. Without the resurrection, we're just placing our bets on a guaranteed loss if Christ did not raise from the dead. And Paul says that Christ is risen from the dead and we're, we're guaranteed an eternal inheritance in future hope. And so not only is hope guaranteed through the resurrection of Jesus, but the second thing is this, is that hope carries us through our trials and temptations, tribulations. And Peter says this right after that in verse, uh, 1 Peter 1, verse 6. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, You've been grieved by various trials so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold, that perishes though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus. And James talks like this. Like when we face suffering or trials or tribulations in this life, it has this way of building our endurance. It actually makes our faith genuine. And he likens it to gold being refined by fire, being purified, being made genuine. And this is what sufferings and difficulties accomplish in our life. We often look at suffering and difficulty as just making us frustrated or bitter in our life. But if we allow it, they will actually purify us. God actually uses them to refine us. They have this way of building endurance and making our faith genuine. And we know as followers of Jesus that suffering and difficulty is only temporary. It's only on this side of heaven. And the hope that Christ gives us carries through the darkness because we know a new day is dawning. Hope carries us through difficulty. We have no reason to despair because we have the hope of eternal life. Like even in the worst days, we have hope. Like a guarantee of eternal life. And Paul says this in 1 Thessalonians 4. But we do not want to be uninformed, brethren, about those who are asleep, so that you will not grieve as do the rest who have no hope. For if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep in Jesus. I love, love, love what Paul says here. Because he says, we grieve, we just don't grieve like those who have no hope. Isn't that cool? We're not exempt from grief, but we don't grieve as those without, that aren't tethered to or attached to something, a promise. We have difficult days. We, we, we suffer loss and we suffer hurt. We just don't grieve those things without hope. How many of you guys have seen The Princess Bride? I waited 25 years to watch that movie. I'm not lying. I literally, it was my thing to just hold out as long as I could because everybody would be like, have you seen that movie? I'm like, no, I won't watch it. And uh, 
until the summer before last, and then they, they sort of wrangled me in and made me watch the movie. And uh, as I watched that movie, there was a line in this movie that was so awesome where uh, Wesley tells Princess Buttercup, he says, life is pain, anyone who says differently is selling you something. Life is pain, anybody who says differently is selling you something. And I want you to think about how true this is. Anybody that's trying to peddle a gospel to you that if you follow Jesus, everything will be peachy and wonderful, that all your dreams will come true, they're lying to you. It's a total lie. They're selling you something that is not true. To, to follow Jesus doesn't mean that we're exempt from suffering or difficult situations, but we have hope to carry us through. And this just isn't about getting by. I mean, like, some of the, the, the most difficult conversations I've had are when people say things like, I'm just getting through this life so I can get on to eternity with Jesus. And I think, seriously? You're willing to forego your great privilege to live this life the air in your lungs that Jesus has granted you, your eyes to see and your ears to hear in order to just get by so you can get on to what's next. And this is how we live our lives on a regular basis. Just we want to skirt by, get by, to get on to the next thing without actually treasuring the here and now, this waiting period that we find ourselves in. And so to follow Jesus doesn't mean that we're exempt from difficult days, but we have this hope to carry us through. And it's not just about getting by. There's a purpose and a plan in our waiting. We have this hope to latch onto in our waiting, but central to hope is this idea that we are not in control, that God is sovereign, that we trust that he knows what he's doing in our lives. And so this hope is guaranteed through the resurrection of Jesus, and this hope carries us through trials and difficulties. And third is this, is that this future hope gives us this present joy. And we're going to get to joy in a few weeks, but um, at the end of 1 Peter 1 there, in verses 8 and 9, he says this, Though you have not seen him, you love him. And though you, though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. And might I give you this reminder this morning that happiness and joy are different. <laughs> that, that happiness is this fickle emotion that's based on the situations and the circumstances that are going on around us. And, and if we ride the wave of happiness in our lives, we'll actually get tired because it fluctuates based on the circumstance that you find yourself in. But joy is actually rooted in the goodness of God, which never changes never changes. We're rooted in the fact that God is good despite what's going on around us, that there's this truth we believe that we put our hope in, and this grounds us in joy. And I love what Peter says. It's joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, like a joy that doesn't make sense. It's this crazy joy that we cannot explain, like even in the waiting time in life, you have access to this joy that's rooted in the hope of what? his promise that we've been granted eternal life through the resurrection of Jesus. And might I, might I remind us this morning that waiting is always part of God's plan, that nothing good comes without patience and waiting. If you look all throughout Scripture, men and women of the faith 
had waiting periods between what they knew would come to pass and when it actually did. And we have to take advantage of the time we have and remain hopeful for what's next. When Jesus will return his second time, and this time he'll take us to our eternal home with him. Uh, I I read the story this last week, the uh, true story, I guess in Billings, Montana, several years ago, there were some hate crimes that were... um, that were done against some Jews that lived in a Jewish family in Billings, Montana. And um, this family had a menorah hanging in their window. And so uh, this, somebody came and threw a brick through the front window and almost hit their little girl. And it kind of raised this uproar in Billing, Billings, Montana. And um, when the newspaper and kind of the city started freaking out about this and like shocked that there were people that were that hateful in their community, the newspaper ran the story about what had happened. In the front page of the paper, they printed this massive menorah. And then they encouraged everybody to cut the menorahs out and hang them in their windows all across the city to basically say, like, we're all in this together. Like, there's no way for the dark to fight against a lot of light. And as we look through Advent and we're celebrating the fact that the light has come to darkness, we're celebrating the fact that as we lock arms as believers and we begin to wave the flag of Jesus, hang the banner high of Christ, that the light would shine so brightly and that darkness would not know what to do with it. This morning, I'm going to light this candle that represents hope. as the first candle in our Advent series. And as I do this, I want to ask you guys to do something super weird, and I hope you're not freaked out by it. (laughs) But I want you to stand up. That's not the weird part. Stand up. this morning. I want you each to stare intently into that flame. I know that sounds weird. I want you to stare at it. Like lock eyes with that flame this morning. I want you to look at it like you're looking into the sun where it begins to actually burn into your brain. Like when you close your eyes, you still see the flame. And I want to remind you this morning, with your eyes closed, picturing that flame, I want to remind you of the hope that you have. That in the midst of dark times, even in the midst of waiting, we have a picture of the promise that is to come. May this flame represent the hope that was only granted to us through the amazing gift of Jesus Christ to this world. And no matter what you're going through, may you latch on to the hope that you can find in him, not the hope like you're throwing the Hail Mary pass or wishing something would happen, but the hope that is founded in the word of God, that what he says will come to pass that who he is, he actually is. 
want you to take a deep breath this morning because I think we can come into this season. We cut down our Christmas tree yesterday. We spent all day getting the tree decorated and decorating the house and then we get it all done and we have the star put on top and we had to move the tree a little bit because it didn't line up with the window properly and the whole tree came crashing down and ornaments broke and I'm ticked and Heather's frustrated and my kids are running around and Jonah's crying like, oh my gosh. And we're just like, oh my gosh, I feel so tense. (laughs) And yet even in the tension, there's this hope and this joy and this peace do not make sense to the rest of the world around us. Lock eyes with that flame this morning. Burn that light into your brain. May it be a reminder to you throughout this next week of the hope that's offered to you through Jesus. No matter what you face Monday morning, you can do this. No matter how hard your marriage is right now, it's worth it. And there's hope ahead if you just keep your eyes fixed on no matter how difficult your financial situation is now, no matter how difficult aspects of your life are, there's a hope ahead that is not grounded in your circumstances, but it's fixed, it's anchored to something of purpose, to a great promise, and he will see this through. Jesus, thank you for this hope that we've been given by you. Thank you, God, that though everything around us falters and is shifting and vacillates, God, thank you that you have always been constant, Lord. I thank you that even as we study your word, there's been just seasons where you have been faithful and faithful and good and good and righteous and constantly desiring the best for people to turn, to give their lives to you. And Jesus, we thank you for the gift of your life, the gift of your death, and the gift of your resurrection, God, for none of this is worth it without that tremendous gift that you gave us. And let not one of us leave this gym this morning without considering the amazing gift that you offered us and whether or not we're gonna actually reach out and grab it. May your hope go with us this week, Jesus.